Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that our spiritual growth is not just for our own benefit. We're all here to receive something this morning, but we also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also spread God's love to one more person. Well, uh, this morning, before I do the, uh, do the sermon, I wanted to take just a couple minutes and do something we do most Novembers, and that's just offer at this point in the year kind of like a, I don't guess you call it like a financial update to the church family. This seems like the right time of the year to do it. We sent an email about this uh, this week, so if you didn't receive the email, it either means we don't have your email or your email hates us. So if if you just give us your email, you you could uh, get get uh, those kind of things from us. But but big picture, we're a seven and a half year old church, and every year our congregation has given more than we anticipated, and our staff has underspent what we budgeted every year. Yeah, so we're uh, that's a good thing. Well, so we're trying to do that for our eighth year. So uh, the staff is on track to underspend the budget yet again this year. Staff and ministry leaders, we're very thankful for that. Congregational giving through the end of October is uh, higher than it was through the end of October in 2017. So congregational giving is up year to year, which is wonderful. That's just a great sign of how generous all of you are. Uh, it's a little behind where we thought it would be, congregational giving, but not significantly. Like I'm talking like $20,000 for the whole year under where we thought it would be, but above where it was last year. So just pocket that. In the church world, um, a fair amount of giving comes in uh, the last two months of the year. That probably makes sense. So last year we saw around $250,000 given in the last two months of the year. That may make you gulp a little bit, but like this is the world I live in. Uh, I sleep fine at night, except that I have a two-year-old who didn't understand what daylight savings time meant. Throw that out, I sleep fine at night. So uh, so basically what we're asking God for, what we're praying for, is through the generosity of the church family that we'll see again this year, that same uh, $250,000 come in, plus an anticipated growth of around $20,000, plus that floating $20,000 that hasn't come in thus far uh, this year. So that's what we're praying and asking God for to come in these last uh, few months. So what what I really mean by all this is just to say thank you for your generosity thus far uh, throughout the year. And as we get into these last two months, if you've kind of been sitting on the sidelines or waiting or whatever, I mean, we're just, we're not in panic mode. We don't do panic mode. Uh, but But every year, this end of the year, you kind of gulp and say, all right, <laughs> will God show up again this year? And he always does, but I just ask you to find your way to be part of it. As God makes you willing, as God makes you able to find a way to, uh, to be generous to the ministry of the church. So whether you haven't been able to give really at all to find a way to start giving or you kind of dipped your toe in, to, we really want to move people towards proactive, purposeful giving so, so, so that you, you don't come in and get guilted into anything or something like that, but you've thought ahead of time and you're joyful about the decision you're making. And so I just ask you, as God makes you willing and able, to find your way to be part of that. So I'm going to pray about all this, and then we'll do the sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you uh, protect and provide for our church family. And we see you show up every year, and we know you'll do it again this year. 
And so I pray that you'll move in people's hearts and minds to make each of us more generous and that we would take joy in seeing the work that happens through this and other churches and ministries uh, all throughout the world. So Lord, move in our particular lives, show us where we can be more generous, and Lord, for those in our congregation who are unemployed or underemployed, we we pray they would not receive any guilt or shame out of this, but that they would see you provide for their needs in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's do the sermon. 8.15, loved it. It was the the earliest 8.15, or the latest 8.15 service we've ever had this morning. This is the latest 9.30 service uh, we'll have all year. We're very excited. The 11 o'clockers will probably come in with their lunches, many of them. Psalm 147, verses 13 and 14 says this, that the Lord strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. So Psalm 147 says that God is the protector of the city. God strengthens the city. God feeds people. God satisfies people with the finest wheat. So this afternoon when you're at the Harris Teeter uh, looking for bread, do you expect to see God pushing the bread uh, cart and stocking the shelves, getting them ready for tomorrow? And why not? It says that God satisfies people with the finest of wheat. Well, well, the reason you don't expect to see God pushing the bread cart around is that you have some at least intuitive notion that part of how God accomplishes God's work in this world is through people like you and me, through the work that we do. And so I say this to get us starting to think about the work that we do and the work that other people do, because for the next few weeks, that's going to be our subject matter, work. Whether you uh, whether you raise kids or you run a business or you stock the shelves at Harris Teeter, whether you make a little or a lot or nothing at all, work occupies the bulk of our lives. Work fills our days, it fills our weeks, it fills our years, but it's not always clear how or if God and work overlap. And again, a very broad definition of work, the thing that occupies your days, whether you get paid for it or not. So this could be a problem because what occupies most of our hours and most of our days, most of our years, a lot of us have very little idea how God fits into that at all. Now again, I don't need to say that, but that that could be problematic. And so what we want to begin to do is is to uh, come to a more Christ-centered view of the work that we do. To ask, is there any meaning to it beyond just making money or passing time? Because at its worst, work is a four-letter word. I have to do it. I don't like it. It pays the bills. It's an obligation. Let me suggest the following more Christ-centered view of work. That work is primarily a God-given gift, an opportunity for ministry, and a window into God's character. Let's start to rebuild here. Work is primarily a God-given gift, an opportunity for ministry, and a window into God's character. So this afternoon, if someone were to stop you on the street and say, Hey, buddy, what is work? A little uh, forward person. Uh, you, you might be able to say, Well, 
work is a gift, work is a ministry, and work is a window. Work is a gift, it's a ministry, and it's a window. A God-given gift, an opportunity for ministry, and a window into God's character. Because if you're a Christian, or you ever become a Christian and trust your hands into the life, uh, trust your life into the hands of Jesus Christ, Jesus starts to reshape us. And part of how Jesus reshapes us is work becomes less of a bad thing, and it becomes more of a gift, more of a ministry, more of a window. So this week we want to look at work as a gift. Work as a God-given gift. You can probably figure out what some of the subsequent weeks will be about. Work as a God-given gift. So how we're going to do that is I'm going to work through some of the passage that was read earlier. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Do some theological heavy lifting on that. And then it'll be worth it because in the end there's two very practical takeaways. So if you like theological heavy lifting, you'll love the first half of the sermon. If you love practical takeaways, you'll love the second half of the sermon. Good? Let's do the heavy lifting. Today we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you ever get self-conscious that other people seem to know where stuff in the Bible is and they can find it really easily and you always, I I don't know where stuff is in the Bible, you pick the right day to come to church. Because Genesis is the first book of the Bible and we are in the first chapter of Genesis. This is literally the first chapter of the Bible. You have a fighting chance. To find the first chapter of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we watch how God created the world. How God created the world, how he brought order to the world. And again and again, God sees what he has created and he says that the work is good. Verse 26 says this. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So humanity was created. Men and women were created in God's image. Turn to the person next to you and say, person next to me, you have to do this. I will not continue the sermon until you do this. Person next to me, you are created in God's image. In God's image. That's true. You are created in God's image. Okay, you can stop talking to them now. So think about the worth, the value that has been knit into you. That you are created in God's image. Whatever troubles you may have in this world, you are created in God's image image. And at this point in the Bible, what do we know about God? We are 26 verses in. What do we know about God at this point in the Bible? We know that God created what was not there, that God brought order to what existed, and that again and again and again, God said that what he had done was good. So in addition to being created in God's image, meaning you have unspeakable value and worth knit into you, what else does it mean? It means that you are wired to create what is not there and to bring order to what is there. And to do all of that in such a way that you produce what is good. Good. And this is what God is getting at when he says that humanity is here to rule over the fishies and the birdies. I have a two-year-old. The fishies and the birdies and all the other critters. 
Critter is a highly technical theological term. In fact, God says to rule over them. That does not mean to uh, obliterate creation. It doesn't mean to lord power over creation. Think of how Jesus Christ rules over his followers. That would be the same way in which he would hope that we as people would rule over creation. God retains sole ownership of creation. But he has handed over much of the day-to-day management, much of the day-to-day caretaking to us. So that we might rule over it. But that does not mean to obliterate it. It means to be good stewards of it. To be careful and loving of the creation that God has entrusted to our oversight. And then the Bible's first chapter ends by saying, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So at this point in the Bible, how does God describe everything that exists? very good so what exists well humanity exists and we have not yet rebelled against god has god instructed humanity to to bring order to what is already there to to produce the good has god done that yes so this is my tricky little question does work exist Yes. When God says everything that exists is very good, work exists. So work at its core is very good. Work is not the problem. The problem is that in our rebellion against God, everything got messed up. And the image of God got buried under layers of filth. And so work became less about purpose and more about drudgery. It became less of a gift and more of an obligation. We started to confuse busyness with really living. But through Jesus Christ, God is remaking the world. God is remaking the minds and the hearts of those who follow Jesus. And so as part of that, work can be, again, above all things, a gift. A God-given gift that is very good. A God-given gift that allows you to live into your identity as someone who was created in God's image. The God who creates what did not exist brings order to what does exist and generally produces good. Chapter 2 begins this way. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, the Lord God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. I love this, that God has a sense of rhythm. This is yet another indication that many of you are not God, and me included. I am not God, have no sense of rhythm. You'll see here on the last song as I try to clap along to it. God has a sense of rhythm. In other words, there are times to work and times to rest. Work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. There's work and there's rest. There's a sense of rhythm. There is more to God than the work that he does. God is willing to rest. God is confident that there is more to his identity than what he does. So God built the the rhythm of work and rest into creation. And then people who followed God built the rhythm of work and rest into culture. Think about it. When you get a day off, what do you call it? You often call it a holiday. 
Or if you go to Europe and you take a vacation, what do they say? You're on holiday. Well, if you change the I to a Y, what does that say? Holy day. The forerunners of holidays were holy days. That, that people who loved God built the rhythm of work and rest into culture. Just as God built the, the, the rhythm of work and rest into creation. And God wants to build that same rhythm of work and of rest into your life, into my life. So that we can rest in an identity deeper than what we do. Deeper than what we accomplish. So that's the theological heavy lifting. Here comes the payoff, the two little practical takeaways as you and I begin to see work again as a God-given gift. So number one, number one, number, number, number one, when Jesus reshapes us to see work as a God-given gift, when Jesus reshapes us to see work as a God-given gift, number one, we realize that all work has dignity and the opportunity for meaning. All work has dignity and the opportunity for meaning. Let me tell you the message I internalized about work growing up. I don't know if it's true of folks younger or older than me, but here's the message I internalized. I have to find something that either pays a zillion dollars and or something that changes the world, changes the game. How helpful a view of work is that? It is not helpful at all. Now, that's not to say we don't want to find fulfillment in our work. And as my little aside here, often fulfillment in work comes at the intersection of ability, interest, and opportunity. Ability, interest, and opportunity. I'm good at it, I like it, and I have the opportunity. If you just have ability and interest but no opportunity, that's like my Broadway career as a singer and a dancer. The opportunity has just not presented itself, not yet. So, so the best kind of work, I don't understand why people are laughing about this. The, the best kind of work is that that happens at the intersection of ability, interest, and opportunity. It's a wonderful thing if we can find work at that intersection. But God never promises us that we will. And in fact, for some of us, it may take a lifetime to find a, a job, a profession that's in that intersection. Some of us may never find it. Or some of us may find it only to realize the intersection moved about 10 years in. And so we may find ourselves in a, in a job or in a role that's no longer fulfilling to us. We may take a job just to make ends meet. And in those moments, we need Jesus to remind us that work is primarily a God-given gift. That to take care of some part of creation, that to do something that helps your neighbors, that to do something that produces good, these things are wonderful and worthwhile in and of themselves. It doesn't matter if we change the world or make a zillion dollars. What we are doing has dignity and meaning because God has created us in His image. To create what is not there and to order what is there and generally to produce what is good. Colossians 3.17 says that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So from God's perspective, there's no such thing as a menial job. God made work, and God called it very good. For instance, this morning, I had a glass of milk. Now, how did I get that glass of milk? Well, somebody had to take care of a critter, and then had to milk or make a machine to milk the cow. Someone had to create a carton. Someone had to drive the milk from the farm to the store. Someone had to put the milk in the, out in the store. Someone had to actually sell me the milk. And then someone could have uh, taken the milk from the store to my car. Now, from our culture's perspective, how many meaningful, purposeful jobs did I just describe there? All right, not very many. From God's perspective, how many meaningful, purposeful jobs did I just describe there? All of them. Now, did they change the world? Well, they provided food for their neighbor. Like, that's a good thing. If one person has a good breakfast because of your work, haven't you actually changed something about the world? Haven't you produced good? The point in all this is to think about the work that you do or the work that you might do in the future or the work that other people do and see the dignity the Lord has given to that work. Are you producing good? How are you producing good? How are you making the life of a person better? Or how are you making the life of people or a group of people or a community better that's what you were created to do to create good and along the way you may change the world and along the way you may make a zillion dollars if you could do it by year end that'd be great just want to see how that joke went over okay along the way you may change the world or you may make a zillion dollars or you may not but the greatest dignity that comes from all the work that we do is that we are created in God's image. We are doing what we were made to do. The reformer Martin Luther, and if you wonder, a lot of the pre-work of this series was done by reading Martin Luther, the, the reformer from the 1500s. He wrote a lot about this. Um, and also a recently retired minister in uh, Manhattan, Timothy Keller, has written a fair amount about this. Um, Luther said... Christian shoemakers do their Christian duty not by putting crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. And his point in that is, part of how we love our neighbor is by making good shoes. People need good shoes. And so Christian shoemakers do their duty not by putting crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Number two, number two, number, 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 number two. When Jesus reshapes us to see our work as a God-given gift, we realize, number two, that our work is not our identity. Work is a gift, but as a gift, it is something external to us. So, for instance, I recently read about a writer, an accomplished writer, who decided to stop writing, and he gave two reasons. The first was that 
he had started to, his writing had become his identity. And so his sense of value was directly tied to whether or not he wrote a good or bad piece, and that became exhausting. The second thing he pointed out was that because of this, his writing was suffering. Because he could no longer objectively evaluate the work that he was doing. He needed it to be good. So no matter how good or bad it really was, he had to convince himself it was good. And so his writing began to suffer. Because the line between the work that he did and his identity had gotten blurred. He was caught in a spiral. And this is how he summed it up. He said, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. He still sounds like a good writer to me. I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. That's a pretty good way to know when you and I are getting caught in the same spin of confusing our identity and the work that we do. We start to develop a superiority complex or an inferiority complex consistent with how work is going. When the, when the line between work and identity gets blurry and things are going well at work, we start to get a little arrogant. And we start to think like, well, things are going well at work because I'm great at everything. I'm not just an expert in my field anymore. I'm an expert in every field. And so, you know, I made a lot of money. It won't be that hard to have a good marriage. That's not true, by the way. (laughs) Success in any area of life comes from diligent effort and God's grace over time. And we need to remember that. Now, the converse can also be true. If the line between work and identity uh, gets a little bit blurry and things aren't going well at work, you start to think, well, everything's not going well at work because I'm horrible at everything. And so you kind of go the opposite direction. And there comes a point at which we just need to say, man, things aren't going well at work, but it's just work. It is a God-given gift. It is an important thing that I do, but it is not the same as who I am. This is where Jesus steps in. And Jesus reshapes us. The biblical writer Paul talks about it this way in Ephesians 3.9. Paul says we do not have a righteousness of our own or of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. This verse is talking about righteousness, not self-righteousness, just the good kind of righteousness. And righteousness means to have a right relationship with God. So the Bible says you and I can have a right relationship with God, but on what basis? And it's not on the basis of the law. We don't have a right relationship with God based on doing everything right, not on following all the rules. A right relationship with God is not something that we can achieve. A right relationship with God comes to us on the basis of faith. A right relationship with God comes on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, 
trust in Jesus Christ, trust that, uh, trusting our lives into His hand, trusting that He has already done all that is needed to reconcile us to God, that the curse is broken, that the cure has begun, and it's all because of Jesus, His perfect life, His willing and sacrificial death, His victorious and world-changing resurrection. Jesus invites you and invites me and invites all of us to come into the open arms of our Creator and to be made new and to experience the beauty of being the people we were made to be. What were you made to do? Remember the beginning of the Bible. What were you made to do? To bear God's image. To point people towards God. To reassure people, it's all okay here. This is God's kingdom now. You were made to bear the image of God. To point people in God's direction. The point of all that is this. As a follower of Jesus, my identity is received, not achieved. If you follow Jesus or if you ever decide to follow Jesus, your identity is received, not achieved. I am God's child forever, but I didn't do anything to earn it. Jesus did all the work and invites me to share in his victory. So when I preach a great sermon, I am God's child who preached a great sermon. And when I preach a lousy sermon, I am God's child who preached a lousy sermon. But my identity and my work are not the same. And my identity is secure because of Jesus. It's an identity received, not achieved. I want the same thing for you. So that you can enter into a right relationship with God by faith in Jesus. That you can, in doing that, receive your identity as God's child eternally. And that Jesus can, from the inside out, remake you into the person who bears God's image. Including in the work that you do. That you create what wasn't there and bring order to what was there and generally Do something that produces good. All right. So here's my little wrap-up question. What difference does it make or what difference would it make for you to see work as a God-given gift? What difference does it make? What difference would it make for you to see work as a God-given gift? Whether you work that you do the work that you may do in the future, the work that other people do, your studies, raising a family, being a husband or a wife, the things that occupy the bulk of our days. What difference does it make or would it make for you to see that work primarily as a God-given gift? Because God designed it as a gift. He called it very good. And part of Jesus' rescue mission is to make it a gift once more. Jesus wants to invade our lives, to give us an identity received instead of achieved, and to see our work and the work of others as full of dignity and contributing to the good of a person or a people or of a community. 
So there we go. Next week, we're going to take a little detour and say, well, wait a minute. What about, like, donating to make money? Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about work as a window into God's character and work as an opportunity for ministry. Then it'll be December, everybody. Get your trees out. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for those visiting with us today, and I pray that they'll find a home here or at some church. Let me give all of us just a quiet moment to talk to God or to listen to God about whatever he's stirring in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, I thank you that we do not have to give people or give the work of people dignity, but that we merely have to see the dignity you've already placed in it. Thank you that as a follower of Jesus, I, I get to uh, be on a level playing field with those who do all kinds of work. Because you called it very good. Lord, I do pray for us in the deep work of identity. I pray in these following songs and in the weeks and months to come, we would be willing to let go of a sense that we have to achieve our identity and that we would rest in you and receive an identity through Jesus Christ. Some of us may even be so bold as to open our lives to Jesus and say, come in, Lord Jesus, make my life your home. And in doing so, receive the eternal identity as God's child. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.